If brands took an active interest in knowing where their advertising spend goes, very quickly you would see that spend gravitate to places that are trusted and safe. Welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. After months of it being an open secret that Facebook was looking to reduce its emphasis on news, parent company Meta announced this month it would be deprecating news on the platform in the UK, France, and Germany beginning in December. It will be removing its dedicated news tab and ending funding for its community news project. While publishers likely saw this coming, it is just the latest bit of news in what has been a challenging year for the digital publishing industry. Darlings like BuzzFeed News and Vice have gone under. Meanwhile, local news continues to experiment with new business strategies, and tabloids have looked to expand their audiences in the face of business pressure, primarily in the American market, as I wrote about earlier this year. On the other hand, historical broadsheets like The Telegraph, Guardian, and Times have remained successful, and advertisers have signaled a continued interest in supporting premium digital content, such as through increasingly working to get ads off of lower-quality, made-for-advertising websites. And I haven't even mentioned AI yet, which could vastly change journalism and content creation as we know it. Helping publishers through this period of digital transition has been Ozone. Launched in 2018, Ozone is a digital advertising alliance originally backed by the UK's largest premium publishers, including News UK, Guardian News and Media, Telegraph Media Group, and Reach. Though its partners have since expanded, Ozone aims to sell display ads and pull publishers' data at scale. Craig Tuck, the company's chief revenue officer, will be speaking next month at our Future of Media event. More information on that at the end of the episode, but today I am very excited to be joined by their CEO, Damon Reeve, to discuss the state of news publishing. Damon, it's great to have you on. Thank you very much, Jack. Love to uh, be here. Before we talk about all of those various you know, current event stories, um, I wanted to, to know, Damon, what brought you to lead Ozone in the first place uh, and what your mission has been over the past you know, five years now, uh, because this is the summer is, is your five-year anniversary with the company and, and the company's existence. Probably, Mike, it started with a consumer interest. Um, I read the news. Um, I've never worked in news publishing before Ozone. Uh, I felt, but, but I have worked in advertising, digital advertising for most of my career. And it was clear through what I'd done previously that news advertise, uh, sorry, news publishing, news and magazine publishing um, generally is underrepresented and undervalued in an advertising world. Uh, programmatic sort of frameworks and structures around monetization um, severely undervalue the content and the editorial and the journalism, the investment that's made in that content relative to other um, advertising opportunities. So I saw that was an opportunity um, to turn the tide, really, where um, there'd been a long decline of investment in publishing by advertisers, um, which um, f- predominantly follows a print um, decline path rather than it being around digital per se. Um, and that was an opportunity um, to turn the tide and, and move newspapers from a place where they were uh, making jur- um, journalists redundant to actually investing in um, journalism. Mm. And you mentioned you had a, a career in, in advertising beforehand. What what actually made you get into media in, in the first place? Um, I fell into it, I would say. Um, <laughs> it's a common used, answer. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think anyone sets out in, in their early life to say, I want to work in the advertising industry. Mm. Um, I used to work in radio. Um, this is in the mid-90s, um, just around the time that the web launched um, and created, because I was working the marketing team, created a website for the radio station that I worked for. Um, and went from there. Mm, that so was my uh, first love. 
<laughs> so being on the podcast should hopefully feel like familiar territory for you. It's okay, yeah. <laughs> so I mentioned in the introduction uh, that Facebook has made some big changes over the the past year that that have had a negative impact on, on publishers. I'm curious, uh, you know, from from your conversations with with publishers, I mean, how have they been reacting? Um, you know, without reliable revenues from social, uh, how are they looking to adapt business strategy? I mean, as you said in your intro, this isn't a surprise. I think the writing was on the wall when um, um, Facebook or Meta sort of behaved the way that they did with the Australian regulators and in the Australian market. So I think that this was always something that was going to happen. As a result, publishers have been actively trying to reduce their exposure to traffic sources from social platforms, which has declined. I think um, from the numbers that we see, it's in the sort of 10 to 13% range of traffic is coming from social platforms, which is still a decent number, but it's not as big as it used to be. Uh, it'll have an impact, um, but I think publishers have done a good job from what we've seen over the last sort of um, year and a half, two years of trying to reduce that exposure. Mm, and then how have they been reducing that exposure? Uh, investing more in um, direct traffic sources and trying to build up their sort of um, uh, their subscriber base, their registered users, investing in building their own brand amongst readers, um, investing in uh, more in um, news aggregators, um, in search, um, all of those sources, I guess, complement, particularly direct, uh, I think is probably where the one we've seen the most growth. Mm. I, I just wrote a piece um, uh, recently about um, how some publishers might be looking at micropayment models. Yep. Um, has that been something that's popped up in conversations at all uh, that you've heard? It's been a, a, a topic that has circulated for a number of years. I saw your article, and uh, yeah. I wouldn't say it's something that has somehow um, come up recently, certainly in conversations I've been in. Mm. But I do think diversification of revenue away from advertising is is most publishers, um, almost all publishers are looking at how they can mitigate risk um, uh, and diversify into other areas, whether that's affiliate revenue, e-commerce revenue, uh, subscriptions. All of those, I think, are valid ways of being able to mitigate from what has probably up until a few years ago been a an, an overemphasis on advertising as a pure source of revenue. Mm. And and how have you guys been able to to help it, if at all, uh, with sort of that transition period of, of you know needing to diversify a publisher's revenue? Um, certainly helping publishers. Um, uh, so Ozone working across a number of publishers gives us a unique position from a data point of view. So mm. insights around. Um, you know, benchmarks, um, ways in which an individual publisher is performing compared to an average of their peer group um, helps them make different business decisions. So certainly from an insights and a sort of a business planning point of view, um, in terms of uh, being able to access and uh, access advertiser budgets that have otherwise left individual publishing and moved to um, social platforms or to Google, um, Ozone as a single point of um, uh, uh, activation across many publishers gives brands an opportunity to reach at scale a, a different type of audience. So capturing those budgets uh, and competing more like for like with some of the platforms um, for those budgets uh, brings money back into the industry. Mm. Another, it's it's not just you know uh, social or search that's taking all of that uh, budget. Um, part of it is also made for advertising sites, which was a big article earlier. Uh, this summer, basically the, the Association for National Advertisers in the U.S. found that made-for-advertising sites, which are, I think we'd agree, widely considered uh, low-quality digital inventory, um, currently account for 21% of all online ad impressions and 15% of 
of ad spend. They also found the average campaign was uh, found to run on 44,000 different websites in total. That's a figure they they called, quote, deeply concerning. Um, in response, Group M, WPP's investment arm, announced uh, new protections against made-for-advertising. I would expect to see, um, you know, maybe perhaps other media agencies following suit there. I'm curious, you know, what, what needs to be done to, to make sure that that spend gets transferred over into more premium digital uh, inventory, perhaps, you know, like on news websites or, or other? In, in today's world, that's complex, but the simple answer is um, if brands took an active interest in knowing where their advertising spend goes, um, very quickly you would see that spend gravitate to places that are trusted and safe and not made for advertising websites. The, the, I thought that um, study was interesting. Um, I didn't know it was going to come out, so I found it interesting reading. Um, the thing that's uh, – and, and it – coincides with uh, the ISBAR PwC report that they updated um, earlier this year, mm -hmm. um, where in the first report, 2020, the average programmatic campaign ran across over 16,000 domains that had, had come down to 9,000, which is considered um, an improvement. But that's still 9,000 websites. I mean, that's just phenomenal. And mm. uh, most people, including me, I couldn't, I, I don't think I would actually, from a personal point of view, visit more than I don't know, 20, 50, I can't even, I don't even know what the number is, but 9,000 is a crazy number, let alone 16,000. So for a brand to, you know, and a lot of media agencies group I'm included, I think it's great that they're sort of starting to um, clamp down and, and consider where spend and where ads are actually appearing, which will, will move spend away from some of these made for advertising sites. Um, but there's still a long way to go. Mm. Um, I think the, the, and the, the gatekeeper is the brand. If the brand takes an active interest in knowing where their ads are appearing, uh, we'll see that um, uh, whole part of the market disappear pretty fast. I thought the other, there was a couple of other things out of that uh, that I found interesting in some of the quotes um, from that um, ANA study. And one was that they they these made-for-advertising sites don't perform very well, which I thought was curious because the reason why they exist is to perform well from an advertising perspective, mm. they you know they they're gain, made for they, advertising. They're made for advertising. They gain yeah. the system, right? They have ads that appear on screen, so their viewability is high. They will have completed views on video. They they will effectively be gaming the metrics to make sure that they get spend captured. So, a, a sort of an extension of a brand taking an interest in where their ads actually appear is making sure that the buyers that they're entrusting to spend their media are not targeted on metrics that are effectively ad tech metrics or metrics that don't really move their business forward. They're just media metrics for the sake of it. Mm. Um, and I feel like that's, that is starting to change. And I think as um, third party cookies go away in Chrome um, at some point next year, and a lot of that data doesn't exist, um, then there will be a natural trend towards business metrics and, uh, and measures that um, actually have a business impact. Mm, mm. And, and first party data as opposed to sure. third-party data. Correct. Um, another thing that that stuck out to me uh, from, from that study was the environmental impact of essentially wasted advertising. Uh, you know, if, if so much is being spent that isn't effective on sites that people might not be going to as frequently as, as other sites, then it's essentially a huge carbon sink as well. Um, uh, I've spoken to... Scope three about how reducing ads on those sites can contribute to sustainable advertising goals. But I know that this fall, Ozone is also launching its own new initiative regarding sustainability. It's called EcoZone. I'm 
curious, in your own words, how would you describe the initiative? And, and was it advertisers or publishers or both that sort of drove you to start looking into this space a little bit more than you had been perhaps previously? I'd say both. Uh, I think both uh, brands and publishers have an active interest in not only reducing carbon output because everyone need, needs to be measuring and reducing, um, but also um, the correlation between carbon output and you know doing good business is fairly tight. Mm. Um, so w- with ozone, we have a you know, and and within publishing, you know, there's a fairly general held view where buying direct is generally better. So by direct from the publisher, you have a one-to-one connection between the brand and the publisher. That's a good thing. Um, after that, buy through Ozone because Ozone, as a um, uh, representing a collection of publishers, is a next step um, to doing that. As soon as you move further away into more open programmatic um, activity, um, where there's lots of ad requests and bids, and you know a lot of data moving backwards and forwards, where win rates are low and yields are low. Um, you're just doing a lot of work. There's a lot of computing power for not a lot of return value. Um, and I think that is is unproductive um, commercially as much as it is from a carbon point of view. So I'd see uh, over time, hopefully, um, we'll move in a direction that's much more beneficial to both the brand and the publisher and in, in turn also beneficial from a sustainability point of view. So I think that with with a lot of the um, and where we started with EcoZone was you have to start somewhere. You know, I think that was where we sort of heard early on that just start doing something, mm. uh, and then that gives you a baseline to improve from. Um, so um, our interest um, uh, earlier this year was to at least get something out there. So we were able to measure at a campaign level the carbon output based on all of the work and the activity that's done from a people, but also a technology point of view. That gives us a baseline to then improve. Mm. It's a, it's good advice in, in general, I find, especially for writing. You know, it's better to work from a first draft than you know just try and come up with the final draft all at once. <laughs> um, speaking of, of writing journalism, I suppose uh, last week we we ran an op-ed uh, by Sunday Mirror editor Gemma Aldridge. I, th- I thought this was fascinating. I want to get your opinion on it because she she describes speaking to a, a number of teens as part of Reach's efforts to promote media industry careers to the next generation. Um, I myself am a twenty something, so I'm not quite that young, but I, I perhaps uh, am a little bit too. I, I like to think that I'm attuned to what teenagers are, are thinking, although I'm slowly, very quickly running out of time for that to be true. Um, but basically, they gave. Uh, uh, Reach gave them a media set assignment, uh, and and Aldridge was struck by the both the ingenuity uh, that they d- demonstrated, but also the the lack of care toward traditional news that they seem to to have. Um, I'm just going to quote from the piece: "Quote when we asked teens which news brands, any news brand, they would target to give their content maximum impact, we got tumbleweeds." When we asked who they trust for their news, they repeatedly pointed to social channels, leaning heavily on user-generated content and other young voices. One pupil explained that he wanted to be, quote, involved, not just spoken to, unquote. They expect a two-way street, a symbiotic relationship they can take part in, end quote. Damon, I'm curious what you make of that demonstration of how Gen Z views news. I mean, part of it, I'm sure, is just young people are less into news um, than they probably will become later in life. But... I suppose, you know, how, how how can trust and interest be gained among young uh, readers, young audiences? I'm trying to think of what it was like for me when I was that age. Uh, did I take an interest in news um, in the way that uh, maybe I did as I got older? Mm. Uh, certainly 
in general, if you look at the under 35s, and Newsworks have done a lot of work um, uh, over the last couple of years understanding how younger people are engaging with uh, uh, news uh, and consuming news, and the stats are pretty encouraging that while different platforms are um, the origin or the source of, of news, um, their uh, scepticism about the integrity of what they're reading um, uh, has grown thanks to social media. So people mm. don't take necessarily at face value. They look at the source. Um, they, they have an active interest in topics um, and, you know, there's a lot of sort of, I guess, social benefit to being on top of the news. Um, news aggregators have played a big role in that too, um, particularly with um, Apple News and Google News. Um, so I think that as, and I'm sort of broadening it out to say the under 35s, there's actually a lot of reasons to be encouraged that news as a uh, category and from a societal point of view is an important anchor within their lives. Coming to teens, um, uh, I'm much further away than you are from that demographic. <laughs> that so uh, there's no doubt that news brands themselves uh, don't have the same profile today that they did uh, probably when I was that age. Um, you know, we had newsstands, literally. Mm. Um, you read the paper and there was a certain number of uh, mastheads that you were familiar with, even if you didn't read them. Today, the proliferation of different d data sources, different platforms that people access content, um, the huge popularity of, you know, the social media and uh, TikTok and whatnot, where there is a muddying of the waters in terms of content that is pseudo-news, so not regulated, um, there's no editorial um, integrity that sits behind it, but it's packaged as being news, uh, I guess is a real risk. Maybe that's where over time, uh, um, as people get a little bit older, um, they move from teens into their 20s and that scepticism uh, becomes a, a skill and they sort of don't necessarily take at face value what they see. I would certainly hope that's the case. Um, I'm not familiar, but then I've got to put my hand up and say I'm not. Uh, I'm not a publisher. So in terms of reaching that audience uh, and understanding how they engage in uh, publishing, I don't know what initiatives are um, are being invested in. Um, I certainly hope there are, hope there are some, but I certainly hope also that um, the profile of regulated, editorially governed content um, becomes much more prominent in people's lives and in society. Mm. I'm also curious how much, I mean, I think historically the, the, the value of the under 35 has been really high for, for advertisers. Um, I'm curious if you think that's actually changed at all. And if maybe the gray pound is, is even more valuable, especially in a cost of living crisis where someone with more disposable income, generally speaking, might be a little bit older than someone who's just starting out in the workforce. That's fair. I would say, I mean, I think, uh, um, there's probably less disposable. That's probably always been the case, less disposable at like the <laughs> younger end of the spectrum than the older end. Uh, does that really, in a significant way, shift the um, distribution of ad spend? I mean, it, it probably will in terms of emphasis to a degree, but not in a material way. Mm. Mm. You know, we, we've sort of circled around uh, the area of, of trust and whether or not young people might be trusting news uh, uh, to the extent or, or if they trust some social media influencer instead, but I'm curious. I know that uh, trust is a really big positive for uh, premium news brands. Um, they're, they're considered trusted mediums in principle, but I'm I'm curious. Um, I suppose two things. One, you sort of hinted at our, our audience for hard news specifically 
you know, large today relative to maybe what they used to be. And I'm you know making the distinction between news about sports or entertainment and celebrity versus, you know, this is what's going on in the country, politics, Ukraine, let's say. Um, and then B, are the outlets that produce hard news like or celebrity and the other type of news really trusted by consumers? Um, there was a YouGov survey earlier this year that found um, 10% or less of British people said that the Daily Mail, the Express, the Mirror, the Star, and the Sun, some of the biggest tabloids in the country, are either trustworthy or very trustworthy. So it's, it's a very low percentage of consumers. And that number rises at only to about 30% for the Times and 33% for the Guardian. A plurality of people just say they they actually don't even know whether or not any of these uh, uh, outlets are trustworthy or they're basically ambivalent and they're neither trustworthy nor untrustworthy. So, you know, how how trusted are premium news outlets really? I'm very wary of um, a lot of surveys that are out there around trust. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean to say that the, the macro trends are not um, sort of um, worth looking at. But trust is a very personal thing. Um, so people are generally, they will gravitate to the same news brand or trusted sources, sources that they trust. And they generally will trust that source. But if you ask them about another source that they're not familiar with, they'll generally give you a different answer. That doesn't mean to say that, you know, for example, if you don't read The Guardian, someone may say uh, um, they're not really sure whether they would trust The Guardian or not. They, the reality is they don't know. Right. But if they are a Guardian reader, that trust level will be very high. Mm. So I feel like trust is definitely a, it's a one-to-one relationship. You know, you you trust a, a title, um, and you're fairly loyal to that title in the in the main, and uh, but you're untrusting generally as a result of anything that's outside of that world. Younger demographics who are consuming sort of their news through um, either aggregators uh, or via social media, etc., where the they they haven't chosen that brand. Um, they may be sort of scanning news and reading topics, hitting the back button. Is there a chance that they don't trust those sources? I don't know. I, I think there's a very good chance that they're not aware that they're reading one of those sources. Um, if they're on Facebook and they read an article and they sort of then go through to something else, maybe they don't know it's the sun or they don't know it's the mail. Mm. So they don't know to have uh, have an opinion on whether they should trust it or not. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it kind of speaks to uh, uh, how you mentioned earlier that news brands are looking to actually shift that strategy a lot. Yep. You know, get away from, okay, you know, someone just clicked on something on Facebook which was going to be very difficult for them to do anyway in, in the future, and get them toward coming back to, oh, they want to go visit the sun because they like our brand and they trust us for whatever type of news they're most interested in reading on the sun or the Guardian or the Times, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's where I, I one um, uh, which uh, I only saw recently, the, the trend of branded search um, of news brands has actually gone up significantly over the last 12 months. This is consumers just... Consumers typing the sun sport as right. opposed to just football results or, you know, the sun football. Mm. So they're introducing the publisher brand with the search term has actually increased significantly over the last... Well, you know, you're talking about the um, social changes, so social platform changes over a similar period. So that indicates to me that there is a there is an awareness there uh, much much more than maybe what there was um you know prior mm. i think that i find that interesting um i think there's another aspect which um where trust is very personal there's 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 a number of relationships going on from a publishing point of view there's a the trust between the publisher and the consumer 
um, you know, the awareness and familiar of that content and the loyalty to that content and the integrity. Um, then there's a the trust uh, between the publisher and the advertiser. Um, and there's a lot of discussion and debate. And again, it's almost the same number of polls that are out there around, you know, declining trust in in uh, uh, from advertisers in publishing, um, mm. but then also declining trust from consumers in advertising itself. Mm. And so you have these sort of, um, the topic around trust is actually quite complex. Um, the thing, there was a um, uh, advertising association um, uh, had a great study, uh, I think it was about 2019 that I saw where there was a qualitative component, a quantitative component. If you read the, if you saw the quantitative component, decline in trust in advertising by consumers had plummeted. Um, over a 30-year period and it was disastrous and what, what are we going to do about it? And it felt very uh, existential. But when you actually watch the video of people being interviewed and asked questions about advertising that they saw and they trust, and these are the same people that filled out the surveys, actually what they didn't like was bad advertising. Mm. They talked very favourably and positively about really good advertising, but it was the bad stuff that dragged everything down. And so it gave you a, a, a very different view of what people's sort of sense of trust around advertising is. Um, uh, and actually um, was quite enjoyable. It was quite uplifting and quite positive. But the bad stuff drags everything down. And I think that that's where, particularly when it comes to programmatic advertising, um, enough's been said about a lot of the bad practices and behaviours, but that is what drags a lot of uh, um, these people's sense of trust around advertising down, mm. which in turn, I think, when it comes to digital publishing, um, uh, has an impact, a negative impact. There is an interesting dichotomy there because one could think, you know, if an advertiser wants to be improve their their trust among among consumers, well, maybe they could advertise with a more trusted source, you know, like a, a publisher that the consumers might have preference or that, that that trusts. And there's been some uh, uh, studies by uh, Peter Field that have spoken a bit to, to that, just released in the past you know, twelve months or so. I think there's a high correlation for me uh, in um, a, the user experience. If it's a good user experience, uh, then that is a great advertising experience, um, so advertiser experience, but also is uh, creates a lot of trust. And so, um, you know, some of the publishers you mentioned, The Telegraph being one where they've invested heavily in their user uh, experience, their registration um, strategy, um, their reader-first strategy, and that's gone really well for them over the last few years, which in turn creates a good user experience. Um, that creates a great advertiser experience, mm. um, which in turn, I think, drives a positive sort of cycle around trust. Mm. One thing I would say is, uh, you know, you, you mentioned just a bit ago about uh, how bad ads can drag things down, basically. Would you say anyone has like a favorite digital like banner ad? Do you know what I mean? Like, is, is the inventory needing some sort of innovation or, or updating to get advertisers to be like, you know what, that that actually seems like a really cool thing we could play around with? Social platforms have done well uh, to create a, a sort of an ad experience that people engage in. That's harder in a web environment. Mm -hmm. um, it's harder in a news environment, not impossible. Um, I don't think from a publishing point of view, I don't think, I can't recall a compelling advertising experience that has really worked, but um, that doesn't mean to say it won't happen. Uh, but social platforms, I guess th this is one of the, the things that they have done a great job of is creating a great advertising experience where the user can engage in a brand, they can buy within the, the unit, um, a product. So I think that, that there are, what's interesting is a lot of people probably don't think of that as advertising. Mm. You know, they mm. think of that as part of their feed 
which is kind of interesting conceptually, but um, even though it is actually advertising. That's so from an individual consumer point of view, I think that, um, you know, particularly in a web environment, advertising isn't generally a great experience. That doesn't mean to say it doesn't work mm. uh, from an advertiser's expe- uh, um, uh, perspective. I think that's where hopefully um, over the coming years, as less data is available through, you know, Chrome being deprecated and uh, sort of more privacy controls around app that other ways of measuring the effectiveness of online advertising compared to other media channels will highlight the benefits um, that publishing and news publishing has relative to the rest of online display, Mm. Um, where I think right now it's undervalued and thrown into the same pot, um, valued on the sort of ad tech currency of CPM and click-through rates and as buying as cheap as possible. So in some ways, a, a measurement revolution would lead to, in your opinion, the more investment in the premium brands that you represent. Absolutely. Mm. And and how difficult is it to accomplish such a measurement revolution? Um, uh, well, it's um, you know, if you don't if you don't uh, try, you, you you'll never <laughs> get there. I I think actually there's a huge there's two two parts to um. That, that I think are coming um, that are really positive that I, I, I'd say give it a good chance. Um, the first is third-party cookie data is going away. So a lot of the attribution models, um, a lot of the ad tech metrics and stuff like that that were really built on um, the cookie, a third-party cookie, they're just not going to be there. That means that brands still need to measure the effectiveness of where they invest their, their money. So they're going to be uh, um, you're looking at mixed media modeling tools in a much bigger way and evaluating their digital ad spend in a different way. That combined with uh, your sort of reference to um, generative AI before, Mm. that combined with maybe not gen AI, but certainly data science, machine learning, uh, modeling, stuff like that, as it comes into and really starts to develop and mature the media planning process, um, I think is going to create a real shift um, in the way uh, brands think about multi-channel uh, uh, investment. And within that, I think um, uh, the, expect, the the hope is that um, news and magazines will be seen as quite distinct in terms of the way that they behave and the role that they play in the customer funnel from other online display. Um, so in the same way that in the latest PwC, um, IAB PwC report where retail media, as it was, it was separated out as a category, uh, I think there's a real need for publishing to be split out as a category within that um, uh, overall survey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would think that publishers uh, could certainly be considered like retail media. I mean, in some ways, retail media, I feel like, has almost taken publishers' lunch in, in, in a way. I mean, that, that investment could certainly have gone to publishers had they been uh, a little bit more aggressive in perhaps, you know, investing in e-commerce solutions or, or affiliate uh, deals with with retailers, frankly. Um, and I'm curious to see if, if, if there is that sort of movement in that direction uh, in, in the future as well. I guess from my point of view, uh, uh, moving to an offline world, um, we had news and magazines, uh, newsstands, magazines, people used to consume their, their awareness and consideration around certain brands was driven by flicking through the paper or flicking through a magazine. And then you would go into a shop um, and you would buy something and at the point of sale, mm. uh, there's a whole bunch of, you know, stuff to buy to add to the card or whatever. Um, for me, this is just the digital version of that. Retail meter is the point of sale piece. It's the end of funnel, you know, capturing the that um, user as at the point of buying. 
news and magazines do a great job of driving awareness and consideration. Um, that's difficult to articulate in today's tech metrics. Um, I do think that in a world in the coming years of mixed media modeling, that will be proven out to um, show the benefit of investing in news and magazines will have on your search or your retail spend. Mm, mm. Uh, I'd like to, to transition us to our quick hits section. You usually use this as an opportunity to talk a lot about recent developments in the news that would be relevant to our guests, but we've already done that a, a great deal today. So I thought I would ask a few more fun questions uh, more related to yourself. Um, first, I'm curious, you know, in your mind, what has been the the biggest news story broken by a broadsheet, tabloid, digital native uh, uh, publisher this year in your mind in terms of you know, big impact? Well, so one thing we do at Ozone, because we work with um, 38 publishers uh, now, mm. we see we see a broad spectrum of what topics and what articles and uh, are getting uh, traction across the board. Um, and so we do this um, uh, piece of work called Reading the Nation every week, um, where we summarize you know, down to um, what are the big topics. So I'd say the the rather than individual one, I'd say the 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 biggest topic that has driven the most amount of um, readership outside of um, the sort of day um, day news is really been cost of living. Mm. Um, as a category, um, I think the newspapers have done an amazing job of taking a topic um, and really turning it from something that you know you could just report all of the depressing stuff, or you could turn it into something actionable. Um, and most of the uh, the papers, the Sun, uh, um, I think they call it the Squeeze Team. Um, <laughs> actually, most of the papers have a dedicated team now that are their job is to take a lot of the you know what used to be fairly boring reporting, like um, Bank of England have increased the rate by X. Most you know years ago that just went under the radar; no one really cared. Mm. Whereas now that matters. Um, that's something that really shifts the dial for a lot of people in terms of affordability and what they decisions that they make. So as opposed to just reporting it, which may have happened in the past, they're now actually converting that into what you can do about it. What's the impact going to be for the reader? What could they do to kind of help sort of, um, you know, improve their lives as a result of whatever's happened? I think that's probably, that's driven a huge amount of readership. Um, uh, and I think it's a great development in terms of being more actionable with, you know, the, I guess the, the news, uh, the, the statement itself. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I think one of the big complaints that I always hear from people that are a little bit news averse is that it just kind of bums them out to read yeah. too much news. And that's the perfect example of <laughs> doing something with it. Yeah, exactly. Make, trying to make it a little bit more of a positive spin. Um, I'm, I'm sure advertisers have taken a similar lesson, right? If you're, you're down all the time, not so good. If you're happy all the time, maybe not so good either, especially in the cost of living crisis. So try and be useful. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. For those of you out there that, that don't know, uh, one of your hobbies is surfing. Is that correct? It is. And I'm curious, what are the best places to surf, either in England or basically around the world, that, that you have personally had experience? Uh, there's uh, there's too many to mention. But um, if I'm in England, uh, then uh, uh, going down to uh, uh, Croyd or Newquay, so Devon or Cornwall, is probably where I would naturally gravitate to, which I try and do about once a month from London. Um I, uh, do you have surfing partners that you go with, or is that like a solo trip? No, I've generally got friends that I'll, I'll kind of uh, tag team down cool. with. Um, during summer, uh, we like to go down to Biarritz uh, in France, um, which uh, is a great little spot. The surf's not that great in summer, but it's a nice place to be. Um, and Hossegore is a little beach sort of uh, about 45 minutes north of there. Mm. That's a really lovely part of the world. Um, 
And if I'm going further afield, uh, I really love Mexico. Oh, interesting. Uh, closer to where I'm from, but I've, I've never made it down. It's really not to surf there. Uh, Excellent part of the world. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I have never been surfing, so maybe maybe one day I'll have to follow you to Mexico or Beirut <laughs> and, uh, or just the south of England. Um, uh, last question, I think anyone who's been listening to the podcast could probably understand uh, here that we are both expats, uh, American accent, Australian accent. Um, we have one of our columnists, Wayne Bloodwell, who, who writes for us monthly about what it's like to be a Brit living and working in New York City in the media. Um, but Damon, I'm curious to hear your perspective on, you know, you've been in the UK for, for quite some time, but when, when you originally moved here, what stood out as being really different from the media in the UK versus in Australia? And do you have a preference in, in some sort of way for, for what you consume in different places? Well, I spent 25 years here now, so um, yeah. I obviously like it here. Um, <laughs> um, that's a good question. What What's different? I think it's a much bigger, more diverse uh, market here compared to Australia. I think Australia's um, media is fairly narrow. Um, uh, editorial sort of style feels a little, yeah, narrow, I would say is probably the word I'd use. Um, so I find it much more dynamic, diverse and interesting working here. That's not only from a uh, from an advertising uh, point of view, but also from a um, editorial point of view. Mm. When you say narrow, does that mean in terms of messaging or? Yeah, I think in terms of the editorial styles, I think you 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 don't have that many options. Um, and mm. I think they're fairly um, one dimensional in their narrative. Um, so you don't a bias. Get a, they're biased, yeah. yeah. So you don't get a very diverse sort of set of views. Mm, interesting. It sounds like a, a, a opportunity for, for uh, someone to step into the market, perhaps, and provide that. <laughs> Maybe. <but. laughs> Uh, well, we will have to leave uh, the conversation there, but we will be continuing it at our future media event on the 11th and 12th of October. Ozone's own Craig Tuck will be sitting down with the Sun's managing director, Ben Walmsley, and the Telegraph's chief commercial officer, Karen Eccles, to discuss their vision for how premium publishers can thrive in media 3.0. If you enjoyed this conversation, I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Damon, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Ross Check. Great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time. <laughs>